Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Some of you may know, may not know, that I went to university in a Scottish city called Aberdeen. Anyone heard of Aberdeen? Yes, yes. I think we've got someone else. So, well, third biggest city in Scotland. And when I lived in Aberdeen, my second and third year at university, I lived in a flat really close to the Aberdeen football stadium. I don't know if we've got a picture of it. That is a picture of it there. It's called Pitodri. It's the third biggest club football stadium in Scotland, 22,000 seats. Now, when you notice right in the center of the picture, kind of towards the top, there's a hill. Can you see that hill? Yeah, that's called Broad Hill, right? Now, oftentimes, I like football, I would go to watch Aberdeen play games. Now, sometimes, whenever there were big games, and that's when they were playing Rangers or Celtic, they're the two big teams in Scotland, tickets were very hard to get. So what I would do is, I would go and I'd climb up Broad Hill, and I'd stand on top of it, and basically it means you could watch the game for free. Now, I wasn't the only one who had that idea. When I'd get to the top of Broad Hill, there'd be 20 or 30 other people all there with the radios, cups of tea, everything, some snacks, all there to watch the game. It was, it was nice. It was a bit of a party atmosphere up there. Now, the only problem with watching games from Broad Hill, if you ever go to Aberdeen, you should try it. The only problem with watching games up there is you can only see about a third of the pitch <laughs> and neither goal. Okay, that's, when I, that's the only problem. But the reality is, I mean, it's free. I mean, who's complaining? But it was a big problem when a goal was scored. Okay, because we knew when a goal had been scored because the whole stadium erupted and all the noise, everyone was cheering. But the problem was we were never totally sure which team had scored, okay? So we'd be up on the hill and we'd be cheering like, yeah, we've scored. And then someone on the radio would be like, no, no, it's the other team. And like, gosh, we thought we were one nil up and now we're one nil down. It was like, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, but our little perch on the hill, it was okay. But the reality is, the problem with it was we just couldn't see the whole picture. Then other times, when I wasn't being a cheapskate, I'd actually pay and I'd go into the stadium to watch the games. And when I was there, the view was so much better. This was the view, not the greatest of pictures, but you can see everything, the whole pitch, the goals, all the action. You could see everything really clearly. And, and that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to take a different viewpoint to stand in a different viewpoint so that we can see a much clearer picture of who God is and also who we are as well. And, and the viewpoint we're going to stand on this morning, if you like, is the passage Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. So we're going we're gonna to go through that in a few moments. You can read it in your Bibles. It'll appear on the screen behind us. And Isaiah 6 to 9 is basically an amazing vision that the prophet Isaiah has of God on his throne in heaven. So we're going to read it in a few moments, but just a little bit of background to this passage. It's basically, it's in the year 740 BC. So someone do some maths. What's that? 2,763-ish years ago, long time ago. 
And basically, after a three-year siege, the city of Arfad, which is a city in what we know today as modern-day Syria, a few hundred miles north of Jerusalem, this city finally fell to King Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of the Assyrian Empire. Three-year siege, and eventually the city falls, and there's an absolute bloodbath. Now, after that's all over, King Tiglath-Pileser turns his greedy eyes towards his next conquest, which is the city of Jerusalem. He looks south to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be the, the next place the Assyrians, the world superpower of the day, were going to attack next. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew that Jerusalem was, was next. Now, to make matters worse for the people who were living in Jerusalem at the time, just when they needed him most, the king of Judah, their king, King Uzziah, died just at the worst time. And what made it even worse was that King, Josiah, king Uzziah wasn't just any old king. He was a brilliant leader. He was a godly king. And also, he was a military genius. He had won wars against the Philistines. He had won wars against the Ammonites. He had won wars against the Arabs. Everyone around the Israel, Israel at that time, he had won wars against them. They needed this guy. And at that moment, he, he died. He died of leprosy that he'd got when he barged into the inner room of the temple in a fit of rage. And what happened was, when he died, he left his throne to a far lesser king, and the country was in big, big trouble. Now, one of the prophets in Jerusalem at this time was a guy called Isaiah, and he responds to this bad news by, and it's a good way of responding, he responds by going to worship in the temple courtyard. And there he sees an amazing vision from God. And we're going to read about this amazing vision just now. It's Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 9. Let's read. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, and at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but ever perceiving. And this passage, it just gives us this amazing viewpoint to see, I think, so much more clearly, firstly, who God is and also who we are as humans. So that's what we're going to look at today, who God is and who we are. So firstly, who God is. What, what do we find out from this passage about who God is? Now, some of you may know I've got a, a six-year-old son called Max, and uh, 
often he likes to ask questions, questions about everything under the sun. Right now, his big thing he asks loads of questions about is airbags in cars, car airbags. He wants to know everything about car airbags. I don't know why, but that's his thing. But what he also will often ask is he will often ask me questions about God, right? Now, they're not super deep questions. Well, maybe they are. You can be the judge of that, you know? So recently, he asked me, Daddy, can God click his fingers and draw at the same time? (laughs) And I'm like, if he wanted to, yes, he could do that. And Max was like, wow, that's impressive. That's hard to do. (laughs) Then he comes at me again. He goes, Daddy, it's always when we're driving in the car. Daddy, can God run backwards really fast? And I was like, if he wanted to, I'm not sure why he would want to, but if he wanted to, yes, he could do that. I said, wow, that's hard. God's really good. I said, yeah. Then he comes to me again and says, could God God do like a somersault while clicking his fingers? And I'm like, if he wanted to, God could do a somersault while clicking his fingers. He's like, wow, God's amazing. I was like, yeah, he is amazing, but most people don't use those reasons to say he's amazing, but he is. But what Max is doing, it's a real simple way for a six-year-old to just try and understand God a bit more. That's, that's all he's doing. And the passage we have here is also kind of telling us loads about who God really is. And firstly, we, we see that it says he's high and exalted, seated on a throne in the train of his robe, filled the temple. Temple is big. Just picture that, okay? No part of the floor of the temple is visible because the train of his robe is so big that it covers it all. That's a big robe right there, okay? And also it says he's on a throne, okay? Notice he's not on a chair, not even a grand chair, not even a posh chair. He's on a throne. Anybody can sit on a chair, but only sovereign rulers with authority sit on thrones, And the Lord God is sitting on his throne as the sovereign ruler of the universe because that's who he is. And you know, like Isaiah is not even the only one in the Bible who saw God on his throne. Almost everyone in the Bible who had a vision of heaven or were taken to heaven or who wrote about heaven in the Bible, all of them talk about God's throne. They all talk about God on his throne. We've got Micaiah, we've got Job, we've got David, the sons of Korah, Ethan the Ezraite, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and John all talk about God being on his throne. And actually the book of Revelation may as well be called the book of God's throne because it mentions it 35 times. It just goes on and on about God on his throne, God on his throne, God on his throne, Okay. So this is a big theme of the Bible. God is on his throne. Amen? Amen. And you know, when we look out into the world, the reality is atheists, what atheists essentially believe is that there is no throne. There is no ultimate seat of authority that the universe must answer to. Humanists, on the other hand, believe there is a throne, but man sits on it. But the Bible makes crystal clear that there's a throne in heaven and no fallen human being sits on it, but the Lord God himself sits on it as the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. And that has always been the case and that always will be the case. That is it. And it's kind of like God is saying here, look, Isaiah, don't worry about your dead king. 
He may no longer be in his throne, but I am on my throne. I am on my throne, and that is all that matters. That is all that matters. Now, it goes on to say that God is surrounded and worshipped by these fiery, six-winged angels called seraphim. I wouldn't like to meet one of these down a dark alley. They look pretty (laughs) awesome, pretty fearsome. And these seraphim are, are proclaiming that the whole earth is full of God's glory. And it tells us that their voices are so powerful that it causes the 10 meter high bronze pillars that held up the temple portico, it causes them to shake. And their voices alone cause the temple to fill with smoke. That's just the power of these seraphim, these fiery angels' voices. But despite the power in their voices, these fiery angels don't even dare to look at God. They don't even dare to sing their song to God. They're singing to each other. And what they do, we read, is that they cover their feet with one set of wings, not wanting to reveal any unclean areas areas of their body. And then they cover their faces with another set of wings to, to shield their eyes from God's utter perfection. And with the final set of wings, they use them to fly. The 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, anyone heard of him? A few of us. He says this about the seraphim. He says, thus they have four wings for adoration and two for active energy, four to conceal themselves and two with which to occupy themselves in service. And he says, we may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humbled in his presence. Veneration must be in larger proportion than vigor. Adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her much serving, so must sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. See, sacred reverence before God is always our starting point before we do anything else, no matter how worthy the thing is that we're doing. Sacred reverence is always our starting point. Now, many of you may have heard of the American pastor, John Piper, yes? John Piper ignited a huge debate on Twitter this last week with this tweet. Have we got it? It's a bit greeny. He put this up and Twitter just blew up, okay? He asked the question, can we assess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits? Basically, should we be drinking coffee in church? And, um, you know, those of you who are all sitting there with your coffee, you're like, I'm putting this on the ground right now. (laughs) You're like, awkward. But he asked this question, and oh my goodness, there were so many responses. People coming up being like, well, coffee, it's part of hospitality. That's biblical. And other guys, other people are saying, well, actually, I need coffee to help me stay awake in the sermon. So like, that's got to be biblical. That's got to be right. And then obviously you get all the responses along the lines of how dare he tell me not to have coffee in church. You know when you get Americans on, on about their rights, you know? Someone tells someone, oh, you can't, you, you know, I've got the right to have a gun. I've got a right to drink coffee in church. You get all of that. I mean, the poor guy, I think he must have just turned off Twitter for the week. I mean, that's what I would have done. But it all lit up. It completely lit up. 
Now, whatever you think about the issue, the reality is John Piper's concern isn't about coffee, but it's about whether we are approaching the Lord with the reverence that he deserves. And that, I believe, is a good question for us all to be asking. Now, for all my chat about this being, uh, you know, a really clear viewpoint of who God is, I don't know if you noticed from the passage, but Isaiah doesn't actually describe what God looks like in the vision at all. I mean, he describes God's throne. He describes his robe. He describes his angels, but he doesn't dare describe God himself. He simply tells us that the angels cried out in Hebrew that he is Kadesh, 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 which means holy, holy, holy. Now, saying it three times, a lot of commentators believe, could be his way of saying God is right there in three persons in the vision. After all, if you look at verse 8, God asks, who will go for us? He doesn't say, who will go for me? He says, who will go for us? Again, something indicating that God is there in three persons in this vision. And also on top of that, John chapter 12 and Acts chapter 28 both tell us that Isaiah in his vision saw not just the Father, but he saw the Son and he saw the Holy Spirit right there. He doesn't mention it in the passage, but John 12 and Acts 28 tell us that that is what he saw. But the three holies means more than just God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit being there in this vision. It means much more than that. You see, let me explain. When, when, when 2 Kings 25.15 wanted to describe pure gold, what it did in Hebrew, it just simply said gold, gold. That was, that was how in Hebrew, you, if you want to describe something as extremely something, you just said the word twice, okay? So pure gold is gold, gold, Okay? But when we look here, the angels look for a way to describe God's pure holiness. When, when they look for a way to describe God's pure holiness, they have, have to invent an even stronger way of saying it than even this. So they don't just describe God as Kadesh, holy. They don't even describe him as Kadesh, Kadesh, pure holiness. They describe him as Kadesh, 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 which is far holier than human language can even describe. And that's the significance of the three holies. Holy, holy, holy. And that, that is something. It's not everything, but that is something of who God is. Now, second bit. Let's move on to what this tells us about who we are. Are you nervous? <laughs> you should be. No. <laughs> I, I used to be a, a youth worker at church, and I remember one time uh, we had our youth group gathered, and I thought, I know a good opening question to get all the young people talking. So I, I, I said, okay, everyone, if you get to heaven and you could ask God one question and you knew he would answer it, what would you ask him? And, you know, if you've ever been in a church youth group, there's always a couple of messers. So one kid's like, oh, I'd ask, which came first, chicken or egg? And I was like, yeah, you would not ask that, but okay, fine. Um, and then you'd have a few other more serious kids in there, but like, okay, one kid said, look, look I'd ask, why there's so, so much suffering in the world? You know, why is, why, why is it that? 
And then one kid put their hand and said, look, I, I think I'd ask, you know, more personally, I'd ask, like, why did my gran have to suffer so much with cancer? You know, it was awful. Like, why did that happen? Like, why did this person I know die so young? And there's a number of questions around that. And then one kid said, oh, you know, when is Jesus going to return? When's things going to be made right? Some questions around that. And then one of the other youth leaders, and I was a bit like, oh, come on, man, have my back here. One of the youth leaders was like, I don't think I'd ask any questions. And all the kids were like, why? Why would you not ask a question? Come on. He's like, well, I'd be standing in front of God. I'd be on the deck. I wouldn't be asking any questions. My jaw would be on the floor. Of course, I'm not going to be asking questions. And all the kids are like, all right, man, chill out. All right, we get your point. But like, yeah, fine, we get it. Okay, all right, relax. But it's kind of like what happens with Isaiah here, isn't it? He's just like, whoa. And it's interesting, Elias, Isaiah's immediate reaction to the vision of the Lord here is not encouragement, but it's despair, you know? Like he's immediately convicted of his own sinfulness and that of his people. He's like, woe to me, I am ruined. Or some translations say, I am undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, generally as people go, Isaiah was probably a pretty good guy. He was a prophet. But faced with the perfection of God, he's just like, ah, oh, I'm ruined. And also, it's interesting, Isaiah's reaction here isn't actually unusual for people who come into the presence of God. We see similar reactions when Job, when Daniel, when Peter, when John came into the presence of God as well. It's like, I'm ruined, I'm undone, just standing before the utter perfection of God. And, you know, I just want to say, you know, it doesn't sound like a nice place to be. You know, I am ruined, woe to me. But, you know, being ruined or undone before God is not actually a bad place to be. It's not a bad place to get to. Sometimes it's precisely there that we need to get to before God uses us. Spurgeon says again, God will never do anything with us till he has first of all undone us. And I've seen that in my life, trying to do loads of stuff on my own strength and be like, I can't do this. and I, just, I can't do this, God. And then God starts to move. And then God moves in. But you know, it's often in that place of being undone, that place where you get to the bottom where God meets us with what we need. And this is what we see happens with Isaiah. Isaiah is in such distress that one of the angels flies to the altar in the middle of the temple courtyard and gets one of the coals that burns with the fire sent down from heaven and touches his mouth with it. And then says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, after Isaiah is convicted of his sin, God then cleanses him of his sin. And this is a a foreshadow of what happens when we come to Christ. We're convicted of our sin and then God takes our guilt away and cleanses us of our sin through the blood of Jesus. And that is the good news we proclaim. Now, when this happens, Isaiah immediately volunteers to use his now wounded lips, because that coal will have left a scar. He volunteers to use his wounded lips to speak God's message of forgiveness. He wants to tell his people what he's seen. He wants to tell his people, wow, God is so much bigger than you think. 
You know, he is the holy one, and he wants to tell people, you know, he wants to make you holy too. He wants to tell his people this. And God grants him his request, but tells him that he's going to speak the truth, but people aren't going to listen to him. You know, imagine being told that. You know, we're going on a mission. By the way, no one is going to listen to you at all. In fact, their hearts are going to get even hard, more hardened when you preach the message. That's what he's told. And I think for us, you know, we need to be prepared for this reaction too when we share with others. You know, I was chatting with a guy in the, the Uber that I got from Heaton's church just as I came here. And you know, completely rejected everything I was saying about God, about Jesus, complete pushback, pushback, pushback. And I think, to be honest, I think he just rejects everything in life per se, you know. But, but I, you know, it was, I wasn't prepared for that reaction. But we need to be prepared for that reaction. It takes courage to speak for God's holiness to a world which opposes his standards and thinks his standards are old-fashioned or intolerant. It takes courage to stand up for that. You know, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all quote verses 9 to 10 from this passage. And they all do it to remind us that the world hated Jesus' message. And Acts quotes from these quotes in the Gospels to warn us that it's going to hate our words too. But even so, okay, this isn't really the inspiring, let's go evangelize, is it? But even so, God still asks us, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he calls us to reply with the same courage as Isaiah. Here I am, send me. And maybe that's something you want to say today to God. Look, God, I know it's going to be hard, but here I am, send me. Now, God promises to Isaiah that if he faithfully prophesies in the face of opposition, his words may not be immediately accepted, but what they're going to do is they're going to clear the ground for something called the holy seed to grow. Now, what is the holy seed? Let me explain. Well, we know from the rest of Isaiah that the nation of Judah would reject Isaiah's preaching and that they would face judgment for its sin. And basically what, what the, the Bible paints is this picture that Israel will be like, Judah will be like this, this tree that is chopped down at the root. But he tells us, and we'll find out about this next week in Isaiah 11, but he says that out of the stump, this holy seed, this little shoot would grow. And through that shoot, I think we have a picture of it, salvation would come and that salvation that good news is what we proclaim today that is what we share with our friends with our work colleagues with those we meet that I tried to share with the Uber driver that is the message we share now I realize this has been pretty hard hitting it hasn't been the standard barrel of laughs preach there's been a few less illustrations in this one than there normally is but I think it's what God wants to, to bring to us today. But I also realize that when, we, when we're confronted with the vast gap between who God is and who we are, you know, he's so holy and we're so, so not, it can be really easy for us to all leave here a bit gloomy, you know, a bit like, oh man, 
I'm a bit rubbish, <laughs> you know? And it can make us, it can also make us subconsciously think that our primary identity as a person is that of a sinner. Who are you? I'm a sinner. Who are you? I'm a sinner. That's your primary identity. It can make us kind of think like that. Now, as human beings, we all sin. Yeah, we are sinners. That's true. But that's not our primary identity. That's not what I want us walking out here thinking that's what I am more than anything else. Our primary identity is that we are loved by God. Now, I've been reading a a book um, by a theologian called Jonathan Pennington. He's super smart, so I have to read it very slow. Okay, there's lots of big words in it. But he says this. Is sinfulness the first word or primary descriptor of humanity from God's perspective? No. Sinful is an appropriate second word to say about humanity. The first word, according to the Bible's vision, should instead be loved or even beautiful. Okay, and that, that is who we are above all else. We are loved by God. Amen? I mean, just think about it. When we look at all that God went through to bring us salvation, just how much it cost us, it only makes sense when we see his intense love for us. It only makes sense when we see his intense love for us. Now, when we look to Jesus, we're we're certainly confronted with our sinfulness, absolutely, but what shines even brighter is his incredible love for us, demonstrated most perfectly at the cross.